will take care of itself So just leave time alone And pick up the tempo just a little And take it on home Welcome once again to the Pick Up the Tempo podcast. I'm your host, Carter Blackburn. This is episode 32 with Willis Allen Ramsey. Very cool. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, this has been a side project of mine from, uh, from the day job when I've been able to steal some time and have a great excuse to go sit down and chat with some of my favorite Texas musicians. So that is exactly what I've done in this episode, in uh, tracking down and visiting with Willis Allen Ramsey. I've tried to keep these intros a little bit short so we can just get straight into our, these conversations, but Willis Allen Ramsey requires a, a bit of explanation if you're unindoctrinated. And Texas musician, although Willis is from Birmingham and living in Colorado, but an essential piece of the puzzle, I was exposed to Willis Allen Ramsey by uh, Harley Bellew, KRVL, Bellew, Bellew, KRVL, Kerrville, Kerr County, when uh, I was starting to, to dig into maybe the, maybe the next level the, of Texas music beyond the surface. And Harley in, let's see, that would be uh, roughly 25 years after the release of Willis Allen Ramsey's only album, Harley said, well, let me give you a copy uh, of Willis Allen Ramsey's 1972 eponymous album. And it, was, uh, it, is, it is a classic by any measure. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't verify this stat, but I'm going to toss it out anyway. There's 11 songs on the album, that I know. I believe eight of them were top 40 hits for other folks. Eight of the 11 songs on the album, top 40 hits for other people. 1972. That was Leon Russell's Shelter album. So that's that's Willis Allen Ramsey's um, phenomenal album from 1972. There's a lot of water under the bridge uh, between 2017 and 1972. I will not try to cover it all here, but I crossed paths with uh, Willis as I was flying home in the fall of 2003, flying between Missoula, Montana, of all places, I said goodbye old Missoula, flew through Denver on my way to Austin, I'm in the Denver airport, and I see a gentleman, and I say, gosh, I think that's Willis Allen Ramsey who's getting on this flight, and then uh, tucked under his arm is uh, a stuffed animal for his daughter, and uh, a sheet of paper that has a set list on it that says Spider John Northeast Texas women satin sheets, and I said, "Well, I'm I'm fairly certain that's uh, that's that's Willis." So I go over, introduce myself, say I've seen him a couple times at the Kerrville Folk Festival, and uh, just couldn't have been nicer. And got off the plane and introduced me to uh, his wife Allison, a baggage claim, and their daughter, and it was uh, it was just so cool. So every few years, I get to say hello to a person who's become a friend, Willis Allen Ramsey, and. Certainly, this podcast it was was not going to wrap up in any measure, if it does, uh, without talking to Willis Allen Ramsey. So uh, while swinging through Texas recently, playing some gigs and eliciting advice from uh, other folks about the about the second album, which has been a long time coming. I'll, I'll let Willis explain all of that. 
Uh, I won't try to explain it for him, but uh, the goal is spring of 2018, a new Willis Allen Ramsey record and a tour. And so uh, while he was swinging through Texas to talk with uh, some folks about that, we sat down and um, got to visit. And and the sitting down part was great, too, because this was at a, uh, a remote cabin in the Texas Hill Country uh, atop Devil's Backbone south of Wimberley. And that was where I got to spend a terrific Tuesday evening chatting with Willis Allen Ramsey, uh, and it was uh, it was a real pleasure. So actually, I, I prior to that, the weekend before, I was driving to Athens, Georgia, as such, listening to the Allman Brothers, but I, I, had, to, I had to give Willis a call to chat about when we were going to get together. So I hit pause on the Allman Brothers and uh, called Willis, and he said, oh, yeah, you're listening to the Allman Brothers driving through Georgia. Well, uh, yeah, I remember going uh, hanging out with them in Macon. So uh, I had to follow up and, uh, and discuss the Allman Brothers first with Willis Allen Ramsey. But I'll play a tune. This is one of uh, his classics and one of my favorites from the 1972 release on Shelter Records, Satin Sheets. And then at the end of this conversation, end of the podcast, I have a, a, a rare, a rare recording. Uh, not, the one, not the one that Willis played for me uh, in person a couple weeks ago. Uh, he asked me to keep that under my hat, and I will. But, uh, but this is actually from the Les Blank movie, A Poem is a Naked Person, centering on Leon Russell's 1970s scene. And uh, Marsha Ball on this podcast uh, made me aware of this film, and it's awesome. Uh, highly recommend it. I'll probably put a link on the on the Twitter. But uh, at the end, it's actually the closed credits of this uh, winding documentary is uh, is Willis Allen Ramsey doing a tune. And so since it's on that film, I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna snag that. And put it at the end of this podcast as a as a as a rare treat. But uh, for now, let's hear satin sheets, and then right into our conversation from high atop Devil's Backbone with the legendary and terrific guy and friend Willis Allen Ramsey. I was a millionaire I play rock music and grow long hair I tell you bye I buy a new old bride Pretty women come to me I give them all the third degree I give them satin shades I keep them off a straight Hallelujah, let me sock it to you. Praise the Lord and pass the masculine. Great Jehovah, you'll come over soon as you see me buggy work across the silver screen. Hang them high, hang them low I put them in the ceilings wherever I go And 
can't swing all night. And the raft the light. Hallelujah. What's it to you? Got you calling me. I got my Spanish tape. Read the whole You'll come over soon as you hear me play my calliope. She was a millionaire Play rock music and blow long hair Tell you bye I find you all right Then Let's see Yeah, when we talked on the phone the other day as I was driving through Georgia. I was hitting pause on the Allman Brothers' first album in digital form, but pause the, uh, to check with you about your schedule. And you told me about going to Macon to uh, meet the Almonds. What was what was that like, and, and when was that? That was in 1970 or 70. Mm-hmm. It was in the... Uh, well, it was either at the end in December or maybe it was January of 71, but I had heard them play a festival where four bands were playing in, uh, at the old uh, UT ballpark, and uh, it was incredible. They had at four the old acts. baseball stadium? Yeah. They had yeah. Pacific Gas and Electric who opened, and they had a hit on the radio, and they weren't that good, but then they had the Almond Brothers, who I'd never heard of, and they just blew everybody away. <laughs> and then Leon came on, Leon Russell and Friends, I think it was spelled. And and you could tell that everybody was good and everything, but this was his first tour. And so it was just in the process of gelling. And then they had It's a Beautiful Day that closed the show. And I had no interest in that. So I, I went back to the Villa Capri because I was booked at what is now the Cactus. It used to be called Les Potpourri there. Huh. So, you know, Towns, Van Zandt would play there, and Keith Sykes, and Fred Archer, and his group, and myself. And, you know, it was kind of on the coffee house tour. And so uh, they put people up at the Villa Capri, right alongside, you know, the Allman Brothers and Leon Russell. So those are the two acts that I saw. I went, wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, You know, we're both... Staying here, courtesy of the University of Texas, might as well get to know each other. <laughs> so I went around and, and knocked on the Allman Brothers door after their show, after, actually after Leon got off. And uh, uh, I played some for Greg, and uh, it was great. I talked a lot to him and to uh, to Dickie, and... Uh, Greg said, man, I really like your music. Come come see me sometime if you're ever in Macon. And I said, well, I'm playing the South on my way up to the Northeast, which was a big center of a lot of the dates. And so I, I'm, that was September, and so I figured I better get my chops together. So I 
went out and looked them up, and it was incredible. Dickie and I uh, went out to what was then the Tottle House, and we talked about this record they just cut. Hmm. They were uh, getting their second chance with Atlantic. They were on the Atco subsidiary label, and their first album hadn't done that well. So they were sweating the second one, which was called Isle Wild South. But Jerry Wexler and, and Arif got Tommy Dowd to record the second one and got it recorded at Criterion. And of course, it was gigantic hit. It was just incredible. So, yeah. But so, I mean, they'd just been <clears throat> going to play the Fillmore West and they didn't have enough money to pay the toll over the Golden Gate. I mean, they barely, they were scraping together pennies and getting all the roadie money and everything. So they paid most of the toll to get their Winnebago, which is what they were touring in, to get into town so they could make that gig. So that's how poor they were. But, uh, you know, of course, then, then the rest is history. Right. So I met them right before that thing broke and uh, got to go pal around with them in, in Macon and make a demo for Greg and it's really cool yeah and I also followed up with Leon about six months later because I didn't like the recording I made I wouldn't it was me I wasn't happy with what I heard on tape so I figured I better woodshed some more before I went out to see Leon in LA so what you put down with Greg Ullman you said all right I don't I don't love that I better I better get it right before the next one yeah I figured I better you know hone my chops a little bit more <laughs> so I went out for another four or five months on the coffee house circuit and got better and I was playing like six nights a week you know so yeah. it was good and uh, and then I really didn't know who Leon or Denny who was the president of Shelter they just started this label and so I just got so lucky when I was so young and uh, you know getting on the college house coffee ass circuit rather uh, that was incredibly lucky and having hooked up with those guys and then going to play in auditions and just very lucky when I was very young and then I got myself into a bunch of trouble because then I had to make a record mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't know very much about that <laughs> when I was like 20, 20 years old when I signed the contract my father had to sign for me Wow! so took a year. It was really hard with the top musicians. Shelter could pull any musicians in town. They were the hot label. Yeah. And uh, I had to have everybody to get that thing over the goal line. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Challenging. <laughs> really, it almost killed me. Really? Yeah. Oh. Stuff. You, uh... Wow. Almost killed you. Yeah, it took me five years just to figure out what had happened, you know? But I processed it. I came back here to Austin, and you know, then there was this scene that was just developing here, you know. And so, you know, the the Vulcan uh, gas company had turned into all those folks had gone over to the Armadillo. Mm -hmm. They got that going. Then uh, Wayne Kidd, who had been with Three Faces West, started the Saxon Pub over on I-35. And uh, Checkered Flag became Castle Creek, and you know, uh, and so there was a real scene that was starting, yeah. 
you know, it was just amazing. And then Willie came down and discovered the armadillo after his house burned down in Nashville, and he said, screw this, I'm going back to Texas, you know. So The, the checkered flag is, uh, is a particular interest to me, being from Kerrville in the background with Rod Kennedy and uh, Alan Dameron, those, and somehow right. it's... Somehow it never gets mentioned, and or, or it rarely gets mentioned in the uh, in the club. So what was what was that place like? Well, it, the checkered flag. Rod had uh, had been a race car driver. He's mm-hmm. from New York, mm-hmm. and he'd raced cars back when he was a young man, and uh, and then he became fascinated with uh, you know older vintage race cars, and he'd also promoted some jazz shows mm-hmm. in New York uh, and around that that area but uh, I don't know I'm not quite sure how he ended up in Austin but um, uh, I think it had something to do with his first wife but then then he, he took his collection of race cars and moved them down here and there was this cheap warehouse space on the corner of 15th and Lavaca mm-hmm. which is you know prime real estate today <laughs> But uh, opened the checkered flag uh, race car, vintage race car museum. And, and nobody came in to look at these old race cars. And somehow he got to be friends with Alan Damron, and then Siegel Fry was Alan's friend. So the three of them sat down, and Alan and, and Siegel talked Rod into taking a third of that race car museum and turned into a music room and said, Look, he said, well, I don't know anything about this kind of music. And he said, trust me, all you need to know is that if you create this thing and there's, there's a little underground scene that you don't know about that's here, and if you formalize it by having a club where people can watch it, you know, then I guarantee you during intermission or when people have to take a bathroom break or whatever, they'll go back there and they'll look at your race car museum. And they'll tell people about it, and you can pack people in here, and you can sell beer, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll make it run, we'll manage it. You don't have to know anything about it. And he got the bug after after doing that, and that's what what uh, caused him to go out to Kerrville and have that first concert in the uh, I guess it's a Shrine Auditorium. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. First year, at LBJ came, right. Lady Bird, and uh, Kenneth Threadgill. I had a picture of him on the on the front page of the paper, clogging and everything. A picture of LBJ, you know, right. retired, and uh, and things took off, you know. Yeah. Bought that property out there. Talk about unintended consequences. You want people to look at your race cars, and you end up uh, starting a festival that goes for close to fifty years. Seventy, yeah, close yeah. to fifty years. Now. Yeah, and nobody ended up loving singer songwriter music more than mm-hmm. Rod Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had been a jazz aficionado and, and everything, but uh, I don't know what happened to all those race cars or anything. I guess he sold them off eventually, but. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, it, it, it all kind of worked out, and it worked out for the kids here and the performers, and uh, uh, yeah, not a lot of people remember the checkered flag, but the ones that do, you know, mm-hmm. really hold it near and dear, and I'm, I'm certainly one. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that same, the same show in, in uh, Austin at the ballpark, whose name I can't remember now, but at the old ballpark. And uh, so that's where the Almonds were and Leon. So did, is, it, is that how you met Leon Russell? Yeah, the, the next day, after I'd hung out with the Almonds, uh, uh, played for Greg, went to eat dinner with Dickie, uh, walked back over to the Villa Capri, 
he was such a nice guy and and uh had the good or bad fortune to actually see Dwayne shoot up mm. and so I kind of bugged out after that and uh, the next day I got up and I said I wonder if that that weird looking guy is still here and I uh, went up to the desk and that was back in the days when you could say could you tell me uh, which room Leon Russell is in and they said sure he's in room building so-and-so and the Villa Capri was kind of it because it was where all the alumni came you mm. know for the UT games mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was cool, and so uh, so I went and knocked on his door, and they just opened up, and you could tell they were just getting ready to leave and everything. And so I asked if I could play a little music. I was leaning on my guitar case, and I guess I, I looked okay. And his road manager uh, Peter Nichols said uh, says Leon, we really have to catch up playing, you know. He says I'll let him play a few tunes. So I played him three songs, and he gave me his card. Said pretty good. Come see me. We just started a record label. I went, wow, that's cool. Okay, I will. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, I had met this guy on the coffee circuit in Montana named Denny Brooks, and he later opened shows for the Carpenters, and he was a pretty well-known artist on the West Coast, and we became friends, and he let me stay at his house in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. so man, and. Then I got a chance to audition for Peter Asher, who I really wanted to play for, uh, because Denny's secretary, Denny Cordell, Leon Russell's their secretary, Eileen, her roommate was Peter Asher's secretary. And so she said, oh, I can get you his number and everything. So I called over to that office, asked for that girl, and I actually played for Peter Asher before I did Denny and Leon. And when Denny and Leon, when Denny found out about it, he was pissed off, and he called up Peter. I found out later on, and said, "If this guy's good, I got a line on him first because Leon heard him, and they'd gone to public school together. They were mates, and mm. so anyway, so Peter said okay. So, <laughs> anyway, so I played a bad audition for Peter, <laughs> and not knowing Leon and Denny, I played a really great audition for them because oh. I went, oh man." Peter Asher passed on me rats, you know. So, lucky. Did you uh, did you get the chance to talk to Leon in his later years before he went? Yeah, we were emailing, uh, and I I saw a couple of shows that he did, you mm-hmm. know. And I got a chance to uh, tell him, you know, how much I appreciated everything that he and Denny were trying to do at Shelter because they they really, I mean, they. It was named Shelter Records from the Rolling Stone mm-hmm. to Gimme Shelter. Mm-hmm. And they really did find an amazing amount of unsigned and untried artists that turned out to be great. I mean, uh, you know, I think their first signing was was known, I mean, was known actually, it was, I think it was Freddie King. Hmm. But they had put out a record also by Leon and his uh, good friend Mark Benno, who turns out was from Dallas mm. and was a phenom and moved out there uh, to live in Leon's house and uh, that was called the Asylum Choir. And then there was Freddie King and they signed uh, Leon's old Tulsa buddy, J.J. Uh, Kale, mm-hmm. who used to make uh, surfer records. Mm. He, he made one or two surfer records, really? <laughs> which nobody knows. 
Yeah. You got to check those out. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if you can find those, <laughs> but uh, I think he did everything in his power to get them off the market, buy them all up. But anyway, uh, Kale was a cool guy, and then they signed uh, they signed another group uh, from Northern California, uh, Jesse Barish and Wings, and they were pretty cool. And then they signed me, and then they signed Phoebe Snow, and then they signed Tom Petty. So I mean, they they signed you know a lot of mostly unknown artists, and I had people tell me when I was out touring that they found my record because they just like every record that they heard on Shelter, uh -huh. so they just started buying the label because uh -huh. they liked everything they heard. Yeah, and there was a good reason for that because they they managed somehow, you know, to take these artists and make great records on them. So did you ever cross paths with Tom Petty in those days? I, I met Tommy, yeah. I mean, uh, he was he was greener than I was, actually. Mm -hmm. He he moved to uh, from Gainesville. They had a band there that was really popular. And so, uh, yeah, it was the Heartbreakers. Mm -hmm. But back then they were called Mud Crutch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there was one other guy that what what didn't end up in the Heartbreakers that was a part of Mud Crutch. Mm -hmm. And Denny originally signed them as a trio, but I remember him telling me, he said, but there's one guy in there that really shows promise. He's a good writer, he's a good singer, he's got the look and the attitude, and he he doesn't know that much about, you know, all the blues guys and all the, you know, gut pucket kind of guys that like Kale and, and Leon and I and some other people knew, but mm -hmm. uh, but Denny, there, there was an interview with Tommy uh, about a year and a half ago or something, and he talked a lot about going into shelter when they closed for their business day and uh, talking to Denny, and Denny would tell him who was who and where they came from and help put it all together for him. Mm -hmm so he could say, see where the whole rock and roll scene came from, because they were kind of in a bubble. They were just the best band in Gainesville, you know? Right. And so uh, it was great to see him give Denny so much credit in terms of, you know, giving him that music education. Oh, and that's cool. that was a great thing about Shelter. I mean, I, when I did my audition and they liked it well enough, Leon invited me up to his home studio. Mm. I said, man, I'll, I'll, uh, what kind of a deal are you getting with the Allen Brothers? Because Greg had told me he wanted to sign me and produce me. And uh, I told him, and he kind of went like this, you know. He says, well, he says, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, if you'll record for my label, I'm getting ready to go out on my first international tour now. I've just finished my first national tour. We're going overseas. I'm going to be gone for a long time. I'll let you live at my house, which has totally professional recording studio. And he did have one of the world's first professional recordings, home recording studios. So first floor was a studio with instruments everywhere, every kind of keyboard, Mellotron, two grand pianos, a full drum kit all set up and just waiting for Jim Keltner and Chuck Blackwell to come in and play, a bass rig for Carl Radle, you know, it was, it was all kitted out. There was a reverb unit in the bathroom downstairs, and uh, you know, and he had this custom console built by Fred Hill, who was this genius electronics guy that um, 
later uh, refurbished all the old uh, Rupert Neve consoles. And uh, it was just happening. And so uh, I said, okay, I'll take your deal. <laughs> I said, and you can live here and I'll teach you how to run the studio before you leave. You'll know oh. enough to do it in between you and Freddie is an engineer too when he's not working on the board. So we'll start you out here and then once you figure out the recording thing, because he, he could hear, you know, the more he listened that there were some rough spots, you know. Oh. So I got to kind of grow, you know, in that, in his home studio. Huh. And Benno had already, had just moved out. And so I could invite some of my friends from Dallas and Fort Worth to come out and play with me. Hmm. So um, fast forward, it's 2017. Yeah, uh, already. Yeah, <laughs> already. You know so that, that Leon and Greg uh, passed in the same year. Yeah. And then so did Tom. Tom was my age. Yeah. He was actually he's a little bit older. He's born in December of 1950. I was born March of 51. Yeah. But yeah, keep loose and really great artists. That's uh, yeah. I I thought of you um, immediately when when Leon did go because I mean I knew uh, I knew you guys were were uh, I mean. Uh, Thick there for a number of years, right? Yeah, he was so so great uh, to me always, and uh, I I'm glad you know when we were we were emailing a few years ago, and uh, I got a chance to tell him you know what a great thing they'd done. He and Denny and because Denny had had passed away in the early '90s, and I said I just want to let you know how much I appreciate you know. Whatever career I had or have, <laughs> you gave me a real shot. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that everybody that they signed and helped, because there were some personality clashes, because artists have strong personalities. And, you know, I remember Freddie saying some things about Leon and Denny, and Kale was the only guy that stayed with them, you know. Uh, everybody else after their first one, first or second record left, mm -hmm. and uh, because you know, it uh, everybody had even even Cordell had a especially Cordell had an artistic temperament. Mm -hmm. So he had a great ear for talent, though, and so so did Leon, and Leon helped a lot of them, and so I let him know that. So mm -hmm. I'm glad I got a chance to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How then do you, uh, how do you approach it uh, in 2017 as you, as you, I don't know, I mean, uh, in some ways, dive back into that world again? Well, first of all, <clears throat> there is no music industry anymore. <laughs> Unless you're Paris Hilton and you wake up one morning and decide you want to record a record, and then you can do that. But, I mean, it's there is, but, I mean, it's just so different. But uh, there are still ways to to sell music and to make a living and especially to tour and the internet in a lot of ways has really uh, made people a lot more aware of of music you know different taste and what's going on in the rest of the world and um, for instance you know there used to be no listening rooms in the south and there are a lot more now than there used to be and that's all because of the internet actually mm -hmm. and so um, uh, so it's uh, you know I'm learning. I'm I'm, uh, I'm taking advice from a lot of people that have been doing it 
solidly, you know, mm -hmm. like for years. <laughs> this is like my second record. Okay, really, get that thing out, man. What are you doing? But uh, anyway, so yeah, I'm just talking to the, the my old friends. It's a small world now, you right. know, at this age. And so everybody's mellowed out and it's not competitive and mm -hmm. everybody's happy to share any knowledge they have. So that's that's what I'm one of the things I'm doing when I'm down here in between these two dates is just to uh, get whatever other professional knowledge that I don't have. But I know lots of folks in the business now, so yeah. I think it's going to be be fun. There's um, I've always wondered what's uh, what's so uh, what's so bad about making one incredible record, you know you. You made one, I mean, a really well, pressure, incredible record. The pressure was really, really on, you know, for for uh, five or six years to really make a follow-up record. And I kind of felt like I'd put everything that I could at that point into it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wasn't touring at first. Like, it took me about, uh, I don't know, three or four years to find... Uh, some booking folks who ended up being here in Austin. It's actually it was called Moon Hill Management, and they managed and booked some acts, and then booked other acts. And uh, it was run by a guy named uh, Larry Watkins, and Larry had previously booked fraternity parties and stuff, and he was just into music. And so I think they're managed. They managed and signed people like uh, B. W. Stevenson and Rusty Weir and um, and Steve Fromholz and they they booked me and there was one other act that they booked because I I didn't want a manager mm -hmm. uh, and um, and so generally what would happen is that you know they get top dollar for BW and for Rusty after that would follow BW and then they'd uh, they'd send Fromholz in there, and then by the time I showed up on the venue, it's like this club owner had or venue owner had lost every last dollar that he'd ever had, and he was worried, you know, about people showing up. But people always showed up, and they ended up, you know, maybe thinking they could go on a few more weeks, you know. But <laughs> they 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 did a good job of getting their folks in and out of the door, but. Uh, a lot of those venues closed down right after I played there. <laughs> For people who thought they wanted to run a music room. But a few endured and, and are actually still around today. But. Yeah. So with 40 plus um, years of life, um, where, do you, where do you start to dig in again when you go back to... Uh, Go back to, to writing songs and, and thinking about putting something else out. What do you what do you dig into? That's a lot. Of, it's a lot of life, a lot of material. It is. Yeah, I've been writing the whole time, and I used to experiment with different forms of writing so I could figure out an arrangement. You know, at one point, I, you know, like in the '80s, I had a bunch of synthesizers and things, and I I bought a Fairlight, you know, which all the British bands were making records on, like Peter Gabriel and Kate mm -hmm. Bush. And I, I lived overseas. I lived in the UK because I, I wasn't apart from the R&B records that were coming out then. I, I didn't really like most of the other kind of pop mm. rock records. Uh, there were occasional good records, but uh, 
Graceland was a great record. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, there was a great scene in the UK in the 80s and uh, ended up listening to people like, like Kate Bush and uh, Blue Nile was one of my favorites. Mm. They were from Scotland. And uh, so anyway, I just learned a lot of different genres in terms of how people wrote and put things together. And then coming back and and uh, writing some more acoustic music was actually, uh, you know, it's a challenge, but but uh, I wasn't intimidated anymore mm-hmm. like, I, like I used to be. Mm. So unfortunately, uh, I, I was able to play gigs and everything in the 90s. Uh, you know, people sort of had been missing me, as it turns <laughs> out. I, I didn't book or play dates for about eight years. Hmm. So, and, and the last three of those were overseas. So it was a good break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cleared my head. Yeah. And when you say, I mean, writing the whole time, um, I've always thought it's, 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 one of the biggest decisions is what you what you share, right? Like what this mm-hmm. is this is a this is something that I like, or this is something I want to share. This is something I feel compelled to share. What was it? What has it been like continuing to write and create and um, well, I was exploring share, other, yeah. Well, I was exploring other styles. I was writing R and B stuff. I was writing stuff with sense on it, mm-hmm. you know, because I was interested in kind of breaking it down and see what made it you know what it was you know and uh you know when you put emphasis on the lyrics and when it's just a sort of you know uh to fill in between vamps and you know so uh all different kinds of styles i was hoping to collaborate with some people from from overseas uh, to do um kind of a form of music that not that just hasn't been done yet. It it uh, was taking uh, ethnic sort of traditional instrumentation, you know, like a a, a sitern or uh, you know uh, Yulian pipes or um, you know a high string guitar and uh, but then also uh, like a a prophet synth, which is a warm kind of a keyboard for pads and doing that with orchestration, classical orchestration, and also a, a vocal ensemble, like a, a group of singers who could solo or sing things and, and do kind of a, a world uh, world music kind of thing. And uh, just never could find the right combination of singers to do that. Some of those those male singers, especially, because I can't sing that kind of stuff. But you know, you don't just find a a Sting or a Bono or a Paul Buchanan. You know, under a rock, they're not they're not thick on the ground over there, <laughs> like you might think. There's some extraordinary singers that have come out of the UK. I mean, you know, like the Beatles and Mick Jagger and you know Roger Daltrey and. You know, the list goes on, but uh, not the kind of things that that were being sung in the singers that were around in the 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a few of them. 
So what did you um, what did you end up kind of coming back to that you said I'm ready to record something again and put it out again, which is where you're at, right? Yeah. Well, I started working on that uh, towards the uh, end of the 90s. Uh, the reason I didn't go back overseas was because I met uh, Allison Rogers. And uh, some people here was suggesting that I should play some dates. And, hey, there's this great female acoustic singer-songwriter. And uh, that might be a good show. And so, and, and she was being told the same thing about me. And so we started doing some dates together and then then we kind of got together and and uh you know had a relationship and we're doing music and we eventually settled in in nashville as opposed to austin Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of that music a lot there's a lot of stuff that we came up with there that i still continue to draw on Mm -hmm. and she came up with some fantastic stuff that that uh is there awaiting her? <laughs> it's all it's all on tape. So anyway, uh, but it it took a while to put together the money to do like a serious production, uh, and we couldn't raise it in in Nashville. And once we had our daughter, Alan Allison woke up one morning and said, "I'm moving this girl back to Texas and raising her up right." And uh, she said it was such sort of feminine prescience <laughs> while we were drinking coffee uh, that I just didn't say anything because I knew better than to comment. And then I took another sip of my coffee and she said, well, you're, you're welcome to come along too. <laughs> so, and that was heartening. <laughs> so I said, well, what, what kind of timeline? I mean, we just fixed up this beautiful house in Nashville in between... Belmont, south of Belmont and Vanderbilt in a great mm. neighborhood. And, uh, and and we just finished out the baby's room and everything. So it was, uh, it was a surprise to me, but uh, she wanted to come back home and, and uh, raise Helen in Texas. So that's, uh, that's what we did. Texas wants you anyway. Yeah, yeah. a year later, uh, she said, "Well, you know, I'll give you enough time to settle your affairs, but I'm just telling you that's what I'm going to do." So I was invited along. Frequently, that's the option that's left the mail. I think sometimes. And now it's uh, now it's Colorado. So you've you've been uh, been fine tuning these new songs um in in colorado yeah we had we had a studio out here in wimberley for a while and uh we we laid down most of the tracks almost all the tracks but um uh the money was hard to come by in terms of investment uh and we just got it in drips and drabs and if i had it all to go to do over again i I wouldn't have tried to make a record like that because it was kind of like um uh, I'm not sure who who led who on. If the investors led us on, or sometimes we led the investors on, but it, the money was slow and hard to come by. And although we eventually, at the end of the day, raised a, a lot of money, it was so stretched out over time. We were never able to really uh, record and and rehearse ensembles. You know, mm-hmm. like have 
six or seven people in a room and go one two three go and have everybody play those are my favorite records and so um so the record is sort of overdubbed but uh uh fortunately now the quality of uh of the digital uh, mediums uh where you can sort of move things around in time and the quality of converters has improved so much that uh that's what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm sort of uh, taking those tracks and transferring some of them into that digital medium, uh, moving them around. Uh, not many, uh, not even a majority of the tracks. But then we'll take those uh, time-corrected tracks and put those back in with the analog tracks and mix to analog. So mm -hmm. we're in the process of doing that now. So, so what's, your, what's your hope for this group of songs, this album? Well, I, I think I would like to be able to go from uh, being a legendary singer-songwriter to going, that guy's a MMF, you know. Wow, I'd never heard of him before, but I really love this record, and mm -hmm. now I understand all these rumors. Hmm. Uh, because uh, I, I just... Uh, I think I've gone from being lucky to being unlucky for a good long streak and then from really knowing my business and what, what I'm about and uh, be able to put songs together that uh, resonate with me and hopefully, you know, we'll find an audience. Mm -hmm. But I get bored pretty easily in terms of songwriting, so I like to write in a lot of different styles. And, and I know how to do it, and I know how to arrange it as well. So mm -hmm. this is the best time for me musically in my entire life because hmm. hmm. I, I feel like uh, well it's a much smaller world and the people that have uh, both professionally uh, and the musicians that have survived to this point you know they're a lot of them are just pals you know hmm. and we're just all doing it for the love of it you know at this point in life if you're not having fun why are you doing it you know <laughs> so I'm having a lot of fun that's cool so this, so that really is like, uh, this is this is for the fun of it, and 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 yeah, to, and, to and, and to get back out there and prove your stuff. I'm having a blast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I'm I have a great time every time I play live. Yeah. So. Have you sent the new record to Lyle? Has Lyle love it? Heard this new one? Uh, no, he hasn't. I mean, I I'm I'm sort of keeping it under wraps for the time being. It's it's still being. We've gone from a lot of work in pre-production uh, in the spring and the summer into final production the last few months, and it's going to take a few more to just to get everything, all the little flams and noogies and little uh, things out of that and have a nice groove. I don't want to make it perfect because too many people take those digital tools and, and try to make something perfect. and. Although it's been rumored I'm a perfectionist, I'm I'm not a perfectionist. I just want something to have a good feel and be funky, you know, and uh, make people get up out of their seat and want to dance or you know go, hey boy, maybe I should try this music thing, you know, inspire somebody, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. So, pass it on, you know. Right. I was inspired as a kid. We there were so many great artists when I was coming up. It was just stupid. Yeah. What made you pick up a guitar? Uh, well, just everybody from the Beatles to, uh, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary to Jimi Hendrix to, uh, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra to mm. Keith Jarrett to, you know, I mean, uh, 
Tchaikovsky. There's <laughs> <laughs> been a lot of great recorded music out there. Yeah. And yeah. it was really happening in the 60s, especially Love and Spoonful and the band were two of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Don Sebastian's a great songwriter. I can't wait to hear, uh, I can't wait to hear this new music. Oh, thanks. I, I, hopefully you'll enjoy it. I think I will. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's, there's always one in every crowd, so there's going to be somebody going, you know, 40, 40 odd years <laughs> for this, you know. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to be the case in the majority of uh, people. That's we'll cool. See. Thanks, Will. I appreciate it. Oh, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Lying on a rock like a snake Meaning my body to be Well, it was beautiful, beauty see And I Swimming naked at the lake, beautiful beauty sea. Up behind the bush, there's a bed. Thinks that I'm turning sort of red. Thinks that maybe I could be on the take. Cause I'm swimming naked at the lake. Thinks I'm on the take. See their disgust rising high And all day long the fat fuss and shake Cause I'm swimming naked at the lake Coming back for a double take But you know, down through time all the wise men says That it's best to face life as it really is So how you gonna know if it's for real, Jake? Till you go swimming naked at the lake How you gonna know? 